welcome to 2019 and year five of Behind the Lens. I am so thrilled to be kicking off the 2019 with today's show. And I'm just thrilled to be back again for another year. Uh, to all of our regular listeners, thank you for coming along for the ride. Thank you for following on Facebook, on Twitter, on uh, going to the website BehindTheLensOnline.net, actually reading and then re-listening to shows and picking up shows that uh, you haven't heard, um, checking us out on iTunes, Stitcher, and some other places. But, as you all know by now, you can find the movie, my movie reviews and interviews in print and online 24-7 around the globe. But every Monday, I am still right here 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Adrenaline Radio. And yes, I still am Debbie Elias, and this is Behind the Lens. Uh, if my voice if my voice doesn't hold out today, forgive me. I've been battling the flu the entire holiday period. Still have, uh, still have uh, traces of it, um, but we will, we will muddle through, as always. So... Pam is back again. She's nodding her head in the booth. Yes, 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 she's here. Um, our fearless leader, uh, adrenaline radio station owner, Nick Federoff, is not here today to grace us with his presence. I don't know where Nick is, but that's okay. Pam and I are here, and that's all that matters. So excited for today's show. My guest at the midway point of the show, director Jen McGowan, uh, she is such a talented director. I first spoke with Jen, I guess, four and a half years ago or so for her feature debut, which was Kelly and Cal, which starred Juliette Lewis, uh, Johnny Weston, Sybil Shepard. It was a charmer, an absolute charmer. Well, Jen is back now with a thriller that will have you riveted to the screen, Rust Creek. Can't wait to talk to her about it. And not just because of her experience as a director in the making of Rust Creek and all of the elements uh, that are involved with this particular film, but also because this is a film. Those of you who saw the Golden Globes last night, you heard Regina King's speech about all projects that she produces. She is going to guarantee 50%. She's going to have gender parity on her productions, fifty at least 50% will be female. Well, Jen is already taking the bull by the horns here and on Russ Creek, thanks in large part to producer Stu Pollard, screenwriter Julie Lipson, Jen's directing. Uh, female uh, Michelle Lawler is the cinematographer. Over one half of the department heads of the crew are all female. So we're going to talk a lot about this with Jen later in the show. But first... I briefly want to just bring up the Golden Globes last night. I know that the new catchphrase for the rest of the year is going to be Satan inspired me to do something. Uh, thank you for that, Christian Bale. Uh, that was one of the, uh, the more fun, exciting moments of the night. Also, for all the naysayers, the naysayer critics out there, the public acclaim has been there. A lot of critics have been naysaying. Bohemian Rhapsody, I've said it since day one, the cinematic experience of the year. Hand Rami Malek the Oscar. He just got the Golden Globe, as did the film. Here we go on to Oscars. Uh, I am thrilled, thrilled for the accolades for Bohemian Rhapsody uh, last night. Thrilled for Christian Bale, who gives an indelible performance, uh, chameleonic and transformative as was Rami's performance, but Bale uh, portraying and channeling Vice, former Vice President Dick Cheney. And a big surprise last night, uh, a happy surprise, and you've heard me talk about this film before, um, Glenn Close, Best Dramatic Actress uh, for The Wife. Now, she also is nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, so I'll be covering the, I'll be on hand on the red carpet in the press, uh, press tent next month for those. So I've got my fingers crossed uh, that Glenn picks something up there. And hopefully her name's going to get called come Oscar nominations morning for this performance. It's a very introvert, introverted performance. It is a wonderful collaboration. 
between Glenn, the film's director, and the cinematographer because it involves timing. It involves lighting and framing and holding a shot for her to convey what she needs to convey in silence. Uh, So very excited about that. So award season, we're in the thick of it now with awards coming. Uh, The ACE Awards this morning for editors uh, were announced. I don't have the list in front of me right now, but I do know Bohemian Rhapsody is nominated for Best Editing with an ACE Award. So I'll be bringing all of those, all the Guild nominations as they come out. You'll be able to find them on BehindTheLensOnline.net. And if any more come out this week, we'll catch up with those next week. But talking about conveying things in silence. Um, no, actually, we're going to do we're going to do a new movie first before we talk Bird Box. Opening this Friday is The Upside. You know, Kevin Hart has been embroiled in the midst of a mess right now uh, since he stepped down after after being named host of the Oscars, then stepping down because of backlash from statements he's made in the past. Um, I hope this doesn't affect any of you with his new film coming out this Friday, The Upside, co-starring Brian Cranston and Nicole Kidman. And I think at this point it's just easier to talk about what films Nicole Kidman hasn't been in in the past year um, or 13 months. Uh, But The Upside, it is actually a remake directed by Neil Berger. This is adapted from The Intouchables, which global acclaim, written and directed by Olivier, Olivier Nakachi, uh, uh, starred Omar Sy and Francois Clousset, based on the true story of Philippe Pozo de Bourges, uh, a, para- a quadriplegic. And this was an amazing story, based on an autobiography which he wrote, about Philippe's relationship with his helper, Driss, uh, his aide. It is now translated and adapted for the American audiences, and it is amazing. Kevin Hart plays the character of Dell. Um, Brian Cranston plays Philip. It is. It takes place, and it was shot in Philadelphia. Um, you got you got Kevin Hart, so Philly's going to come in there at some point. Um, Shot in and around Philadelphia, the Kimmel Center, Bellevue Hotel, Center for Architectural Design, out on JFK Boulevard, the Kensington Air Avenue, um, the McGee Rehab Hospital, and the, Kess- and the Kessler Institute out of New York worked with Berger, worked with Kevin Hart, worked with Brian Cranston in gaining authenticity in Cranston's portrayal of a quadriplegic and in Hart's portrayal of the man who would become his best friend and his aide. What is so striking about The Upside is Kevin Hart's performance. He goes beyond the jokester that we all know, and he really gets into character as Dell with drama. There is, it's very sobering, reflective. There is caring and sensitivity and a very touching gravitas that I personally, I did not know Kevin had this in him as a lot of people I've been uh, Kevin Hart fans and we have been exchanging intermittent uh, ex- things on Twitter and other social media platforms. You are also equally surprised to see, for those of you who happen to have caught like an early uh, screening or preview of the film, it is just, he's amazing. He is really amazing, and he stretches himself. And I had a chance. We did a very, very early press day on this um, that they asked us to hold content on until closer to the release. The release is in theaters is this Friday, the 11th. But right out of the box, I spoke with Kevin about his performance in The Upside. Take a listen. Off the bat, I've got to congratulate you on a performance and you, Neil, in bringing this out in you. Oh, wow. Thank you. This is something we have never seen from you. Mm -hmm. And as a very proud Philadelphian, along with you, I'm very, very happy. You presented comedy 
that's inherent within life, but you also brought a sobering aspect to it and really showed us some dramatic chops. Thank you. And I'm curious how you got, how you managed to temper your own exuberance to capture Dell and bring him to life like this. Uh, well, I mean, going into the movie, that was the that was the reason for taking this film on. You know, um, I wanted to I wanted to switch it up. I wanted to give my uh, my fan base just a different look at the world of, of Kevin Hart and, and to see what what I consider you know my my talents to be and to do that. I said, if I have the opportunity to partner up with some amazing actors and actresses, they're going to help bring that out of me. I know what I'm capable of, but when you when you stand with you know the A plus of the A plus being Brian and Nicole, you have no choice but to come prepared and and come with the expectations of following their lead. Uh, Neil did a good job of talking to me before and seeing where I was. You know, Neil was more worried, I think, than anybody in the beginning. He's like, so you, you're not going to be like the, the Kevin. <laughs> like, this is the, the money Kevin's like, no, Neil, like, trust me. Like, the, I think in all the conversations we had, they ended with the words, Neil, trust me, I'm, I'm going to come. You're, you're going to be shocked at how I come. He's like, okay, I just want to make sure that we understand how this guy has to be. Like, we got to believe him. We got to feel this guy. We have to understand the world that he's coming from and why him stepping into this place is so different from him, but yet why he finds a, an interest in Brian's character and why he takes a liking to him and why the tug of war is necessary for them to get to the end point. So all of these conversations were conversations that helped me in the beginning, but that gave me more confidence going in to really pull this thing through and and have the shock factor. You know, I wanted people to walk away with, I didn't know Kevin had that in him, and he did. But more importantly, I'm looking at it from, I'm so glad I had a great director. I'm so glad I had Brian and Nicole there because they helped me on a day-to-day reach the levels that I got to. So it's not something that I would take and, and take as a Kevin just moment by myself. It's a team effort. And, you know, with, without a good team, you're never going to win. And in this case, I, I think that they set me up uh, with the best possible team that I could ask for. And trust me, uh, trust me when I say see the upside, you will walk away with a completely different impression of Kevin Hart. And I have to say, Brian Cranston, he spoke with and worked with um, Philippe, the real man on who his character is based. And he does an incredible job. I have known and worked with quite a few paraplegics and quadriplegics over the years. And his performance is impeccable. You really feel the emotion and you feel the challenges and also the joys. And I've said it many times over the decades that I, some dear, dear people that I know, I have to throw out the name of one, Gerard Moreno. Uh, he's an Olympic uh, Paralympian uh, medal winning fencer. Uh, he's in He's in a wheelchair. And I have to say, Gerard is more able-bodied than... 90% of the people that I know. Um, so it's a very eye-opening film. For those of you that didn't catch the French version, the Intouchables, I say see them both. In all honesty, see them both. You will not be disappointed in either one, and you will see something that each director brings out. And I've got to give a shout-out to cinematographer Stuart Dryberg, who worked with Neil Berger on The Upside. Stewart's work, you know it from Painted Veil, Bridget Jones. He is one of the cream of the crop as a cinematographer. And what he does here, shooting with a widescreen format, uh, using Hawk V-Light anamorphic lenses, really celebrates a lightness, a light and bright white visual tone in the world of Philip. So that you never... You never feel sorry for anyone. You never pity anybody. And everything is up. Everything is upbeat and positive. 
And it's, it's a lovely layer of storytelling within the film. So please, come Friday, do, do yourselves a favor and go see The Upside. Uh, a movie I don't have to tell any of you to see because it's taking the world by storm. Bird Box. Um, okay, for all of you people out there trying to see if you can see through, you know, things when you cover up your eyes. Um, I'm going to embarrass my one, my youngest brother at this point, because many decades ago, um, he wanted to see if he could see out of a paper bag walking around the house, put one over his head. Clearly he could not because he walked into the edge, um, the edge of two walls, which homes built back East back in the 1950s and early sixties, there's a metal edging that goes down the entire joint of where two walls meet. He walked into it, split his head open, uh, and required, I think, eight, seven or eight stitches in his head and created a bloody mess on the carpet and on the wall. So anybody curious as to whether you can really see when you blindfold yourselves? Trust me, you can't. Please, please do not... (laughs) I side with Netflix here, begging you all, please do not try and be the character of Mallory in Bird Box by blindfolding your eyes. But let's move on to the film itself, which is amazing. It truly, it had me on the edge of my seat. Uh, it There are moments that will have you jumping, that will scare you, that will frighten you. And this all goes back to what Alfred Hitchcock capitalized on leaving things to the imagination. Things are not seen. Let your imagination take hold. And the beauty with Bird Box is, for those of you that don't know the plot yet, there is an entity that is consuming the world. And if you look at it, you you commit suicide. Because what you see are your deepest fears transforming in front of you. And the fear is so great, you kill yourself. Uh, and it's a it's a global pandemic, and the world is it's essentially a form of Armageddon, and it leaves a very dystopian world behind. Um, it's a fascinating premise. It is based on I'm turning my pages here. Bear with me. It is based on a book that is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, it just, you, there is no way to fully describe this film. You have to fully experience it. But it always starts with the word on the page. And the writer here is Eric Heiserer, who has adapted Josh Mallerman's book. Eric, you know him best for Arrival. Um, he works his magic again here. And it starts with character development. So take a listen to what Eric and I talked about in this exclusive interview on character development and particularly the complexity of Sandra Bullock's character of Mallory. This is outstanding. You had me on the edge of my seat, this whole concept of not being able to see the entity, but then the messaging that we get by the end of it is you see with the other senses and see with your heart. Yeah, absolutely just exquisitely done but the real strong suit here is your character development this is one of the strongest characters sandy's character one of the of mallory i have never seen an arc and a growth in a character like this how did you go and i've read the book right and it's not as strong in the book as what we see on f- and feel on film. How did you go about approaching this and really digging into that character of Mallory to give her, she comes full circle in life, a totally new person comes out on the other end? Yeah, absolutely. Which, of course, those are like the best arcs are, you know, yeah. transformative um, you know, I you know I tend to try and write protagonists who are better than me as people. They're sort of an aspirational quality that I can try and reach for. And some of this started with my connection to Mallory. Started with um, you know the thoughts that my wife has about 
uh, about motherhood and about either fears and hopes that are tied up with that. Um, but I really think the the script and the story of Mallory evolved when uh, Sandra Bullock came on board. You know, Sandy had very insightful um, experiences and thoughts and feelings that grew the dimensionality of the character mm-hmm. uh, and allowed me to rewrite and sort of a, a bespoke version of Mallory just for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all comes down to that idea of in a world where our trust has eroded so horribly, and, and especially our trust in ourselves, mm-hmm. which is a, the biggest one of the biggest arcs for right. Mallory, that learning to see a new version of yourself, learning to have faith in yourself in a new way, um, is the way that we get through these things. Mm-hmm. And of course, we Trevante's character of Tom, yeah. this whole idea of self-sacrifice, yeah, out of love, yeah. We don't see this enough, Eric. No. No, everyone's motivated by selfish stuff. And in Bird Box, there is plenty of selfish thought in many of the supporting characters, but not within the performances of Sandra Bullock and Travanti Rhodes as Mallory and Tom, who meet as they are seeking sanctuary in a home um, with other individuals. You know, one of the one of the big keys here is for a writer, you know, how do you create a sensory experience on the page when you're writing? You know, some writers actually will write in, you know, the actual stage directions for the directors. Other leave it to the director's own devices as to how they want to convey what is supposed to be happening, especially when there is no sight available in particular scenes. So how do you convey the sensory experience, because sound comes into play here as a very, very important part of storytelling. And I've got to tell you, Ben Barker and Glenn Fremantle create an oral experience that is not, it's not only one to be savored, but one that is as the silence and the ambient sounds are as much a line of dialogue as one of Eric's written words. So take a listen as Eric talks about actually writing and creating a sensory experience on paper. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you create a fully sensory experience on the page. Because you truly do, just in looking at this, where we have, granted, we've got Suzanne's incredible visuals, and she just upped her own game with this. Right. While staying true to her core storytelling oh, yeah. of the human condition. And character and survivability. Oh, it's still definitely a Suzanne Beer film. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. But she just upped her game with the physical aspect of this film. But I'm curious, because of the sensory nature of mm-hmm. how this story is told, did you incorporate that into the script? Such as when we've got Mallory and Tom, they're blindfolded and they're outside and they're scavenging houses and, and trying to get, you know, canned goods and food or right. clothes or toys. Was that something that went into the script, or was that just something that became inherent in Sandy and Trevante's performance and in Suzanne's direction? You know, I had a lot of fun with this script on this one, and I try to be as evocative as possible, especially when it comes to characterization. Mm-hmm. Like in the supply run, everyone had their own version of a blindfold. Felix had like a Michael's, uh, motorcycle helmet mm-hmm. that it got blacked out. Um, one of the other characters had a sleep mask. Mm-hmm. Someone else had a bandana. Like it got to be an, uh, sort of an indicator of who they were as a character. And their approach to doing something as a group had to be, you know, very sense oriented. But I think the the experiment on this script, and I don't know if anyone will ever get a chance to see it just because, you know, it's always sort of a, just a blueprint document for the actual final right. product. Um, I was aware of the experience of being with Mallory and the two kids by themselves, and then the experience of everybody, like, crammed into mm-hmm. one house together. And um, I was looking for a way to subtly even represent it on the page, and so I gave myself some boundaries so that any time we were on the river with Mallory, I could only do a hundred words per that page. It had to look like haiku. Wow. 
Wow. It was a whole bunch of white space to evoke the idea of silence and loneliness and tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever we got into the house, which was noisy and crammed with people, I started doing dual dialogue. I, I went lar- large blocks of text that give you a crowded sense of, you know, sort of claustrophobic mm-hmm. nature. Uh, and tried to sort of design the script mm-hmm. to, to let you know how to feel the movie would be. You typed it visually. I did. You don't don't always do that, but I did it with this one. And I don't care how Eric got to where he got with the script for Bird Box. Um, The result is amazing. And as I've told him before, I want to see, I want to see a copy of what the script looked like when he was finished typing it. Because it just, it has to be amazing. But, you know, and he talks about, the cacophony of conversation and and dialogue on top of dialogue with other people that are seeking refuge in this house. Uh, and of course, being a thriller, it's one by one. We lose people because they do stupid things, uh, which just narrows it down and hones in on Mallory, Tom, and the two small children called boy and girl. And, uh, you know, leading to the ultimate climax of the film. But the supporting cast is absolutely phenomenal. And what I love, John Malkovich being one of them, and he is just off the charts. Excellent. Uh, Machine Gun, Felix Kelly is here. Jackie Weaver. Tom Hollander just is mind-boggling to watch his performance. B.D. Wong, I think he he has too little screen time, but his role is so key. And that's something else that that Eric and I talked about, was not giving short shrift to the supporting players. Take a listen. You know, something that I really appreciate with this film and with your script is the fact that the superfluous, the supporting characters... You don't give any of them a short shrift. We actually get a full story on with each one of them as to who they are. And you didn't go with, I mean, typically it's long been said that anytime you have a horror movie, a thriller movie, the black guy's the first one to go. <laughs> right. It's like one yeah. of the standard tropes. That's it. That's it. Didn't happen. No. You really bucked bucked the system with a lot of this. We didn't even have annoying Olympia go out first. Of course, I wish she had. <laughs> um, but, and then you get Tom Hollander that you really, that just, for a supporting player. Right. You know, how fun was it for you to be able to really craft out each of these people? Not just your leads, but give everybody we actually know everything about their lives. It was a it was a real challenge because you really want to make sure you spend time with characters that you know you won't get much time to spend with later on because they just won't, aren't going to make it. Um, and if you don't deal with them early on, then they don't have a, t- a chance to sort of shine. But at the same time, this is Mallory's story, so you don't want to pull too far away from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and and her transformation is so important in this story. Uh, it meant that we had to be as economical as possible with those other people um, and understand them in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I did was I just overwrote those characters and, and gave a whole bunch of extra pages. And in fact, when you do sides for auditions, there are scenes that aren't going to be in the film, but explain sure. more about them. And in, in hopes that you get to pick sort of a, a greatest hits at the end of the day when you're in the editing room. Of mm-hmm. Like, okay, what's our favorite moments here that can right. continue to, like, zip, you know, land it in. Uh, you know, there had been some uh, dialogue uh, between uh, one, of the, one of the other residents and, and Lucy, the, the, uh, the, uh, the academy the cadet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was basically, um, I... Uh, you know, are you are you with the neighbors landscapers? You know, <laughs> and she's like, no, <laughs> I live here. <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of prejudice that you can lean into. That just like you know, it it's it's about reframing the way we look at things. So of course, you have to do the same thing to your characters. And for more of Eric Heiserer, 
You can go to BehindTheLensOnline.net and read uh, all our interview. Um, we ha- Jen McGowan is actually on the line, so I'm going to hold off on letting you hear what Suzanne Beer herself had to say about stepping out of her comfort zone with Bird Box and expanding on her horizons. And we're going to join Jen right now. Welcome, Jen McGowan. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so thrilled to have you on the show. I mean, (laughs) the last time we talked was years ago for Kelly and Cal. That's right. And we did an interview, and I it was just in a hotel for a regular press thing. Yeah. So that's right. That was in uh, in Austin, right? No, it was in L.A. You did limited. You did some limited stuff here in L.A. Oh yes, that's right. That's right. Sorry, confusing all of my hotel rooms. You know, they all start looking alike, especially if everything is in a Four Seasons. It, it, yeah, well, they're not. In, well, we you know, know we know that. <laughs> I have to tell. I am. I'm so excited to have you. Number one to kick off year five of Behind the Lens on Adrenaline Radio. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't have asked for a better person. Um, in oh the, my goodness, that's it, so great to hear. Thank you. I mean, Jen, to see what you've done as a director to go from Kelly and Cal, you totally went the opposite direction. As a director, yeah. you go from charm and sweetness to a thriller, an edge of your seat thriller that has some great, yeah. a great character study underlying it, um, and a really, really wonderful dynamic that we see unfold between two of the ma- the two main leads, Sawyer and Lowell, Rust Creek. Yeah, I love it. Not only did I have the the press link to screen it. I loved it so much. I paid my six ninety nine to Spectrum, to, so that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I watched it again last night at eleven o'clock after Dirty John, just because I wanted to see it again before talking to you today. Oh my God, you're the best. That's amazing. <laughs> I spent so much money rewatching films, uh, all these little independent <laughs> films, because I just I want to be able to okay. I gave my dollar or two to the coffers to help. Um, <laughs> oh, you know what? Whenever women's films are in theaters, I buy tickets even if I can't go yes. the first weekend. You know, and what's so great about Rust Creek is female director, female writer, female cinematographer. Over half of your department heads are female. You have a very yeah. strong female lead in Hermione Corfield. Yeah. You know, how did, and what surprises me is that the film came to you through Stu Pollard. Yeah, yeah. A guy who had enough brains to see a woman needed to make this film. Yeah, yeah. And like, kudos to him. Very much so. So, when, because I know you went to Stu with another project first about potential financing. But then, he's, then it's like, hey Jen, I got something else here for you. What did you? Yeah. Th- what did you yeah. think when you looked at this? At, when you looked at Julie's script and read it, I thought there was potential to make something fun that an audience would enjoy, and that had a message that I could get really excited about. I mean, that's what I look. That, those are the things that I look for when I'm I'm reading scripts. And and also the bonus was that I got to do something new and different that I hadn't done before. You know, how much of a learning curve was it for you going from a film like Kelly and Cal into a film like Rust Creek? Because we're talking a totally different form of pacing. Your music, and we'll talk about Scott Salinas in a minute because he does an amazing job. Yeah, he's great. You're, you know, and your pacing falls in with your editing, but your editing here, you're also holding on certain shots. You're really establishing yeah. a more visual, descriptive t- exposition as opposed right. to the written word. Your sound is impeccable. And then you've got action fight scenes on top of it. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah it's fun. <laughs> I mean, you went from one extreme to the other. So how... Did- I mean, look, I think if you're talking about... It is the director, skilled filmmaker, 
changing genre should not be that big of a deal. You're, you're speaking within a visual language that is established, and you choose which of that that you want to, you know, agree with and which of that you want to break from. Mm-hmm. You know, well, let me start. Um, I think, you know, people forget that, like, directing isn't magic. It's a skill that we can practice over and over again mm-hmm. and, and succeed in in different areas. Yeah. Um, I-, I will say it's harder for producers to see that, you know, because everybody wants to mitigate the risk of their investment. So sure. one way to do that is to go to someone that has exactly the thing they think is in their head on their reel or on their resume. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a kind of fearful way to do things and, mm-hmm. and doesn't lead to interesting, exciting um, collaboration. Mm-hmm. Because what you bring here, because you have a, a big bonus here is the fact you have the, P, the female perspective, the female POV, and you stay in that with the character of Sawyer. And right. in a film like this, in the hands of a lot of male directors, it's going to take on, I think, a more a more helpless, victimized sense than what we have happening here. Not dissing, not, and not dissing I male directors, that... but, you know, when you look at what, at what has been done with other films in the past, you know, I think go, a female director is going to give a spin on this one that is very essential. It's possible. And I have to say, I don't think that has to do with the director's physical gender it has to do with their perspective because of the way the world has treated mm-hmm. them yeah you know i see different things than than somebody else because of my experiences in the world and unfortunately because so many of my experiences in the world are specific and unique and consistent with so many other women mm-hmm. it means a, a, a particular perspective mm-hmm well, one of the and, great- and by the way, that doesn't mean men wouldn't uh, a man wouldn't have this certain perspective. It just means that it's less likely, right? And um, it's dependent on the individual. I mean, I can think of one independent film director right now at the top of my head. I know who would approach it with a perspective similar to yours, David Spaltro. I have no doubt in my mind. Um, David does an amazing job when he's directing women at really getting into that perspective. And yeah. I, can... I mean, that's the thing about a director. A director is a highly individual role. It's a highly precise, um, I don't know, tool that you're hiring when you add a director to your, mm-hmm. to your project. Um, and, you know, a, a self-hating woman director may have a less uh, feminist perspective than a feminist man. That's mm-hmm. why you have to look at every filmmaker as an individual. Mm-hmm. Well, something that you do right off the bat, you get us hooked and uh, kudos to you and Michelle Lawler, because we start out with a road trip for Sawyer and Mm -hmm. you, you break this up. A lot of road trips, very monotonous on film. They cut them short. They're very choppy. There's a fluidity here, but you, you vary it up with camera angles. So. We're outside. We're seeing the roads. You've got aerials overhead. We're getting the landscape of the Blue Ridge Mountains and being out in, you know, nowhere land. Um, Right. So you're setting the tone with that. But then we're inside the car. She has the conveniences of, quote, unquote, the modern world in the car. She's got her GPS. (laughs) She's got her phone. Of course, nothing is cooperating. And then when she has to use an actual map. That I, I actually got a, a kick out of that because so many people <laughs> today, they don't know how to read a map. Uh, I know. <laughs> uh, so that was a really nice little touch that you guys threw in there. But you kept it interesting and you kept reminding us the location. She's going somewhere. She's a city girl. She's not used to this, but everything in her vehicle was citified as opposed to what was outside. And you kept that in a revolving pattern with your editing. I love that you keyed into that because the roads, particularly for me, was a challenge because we, we wanted to say certain things. You know, we wanted to say we're moving her from a place of comfort and familiarity to heightened presence and danger and a little bit of darkness and uncertainty. 
And how do we do that visually in a way that is efficient and things keep changing? Um, so I love that you connected with that. And, you know, and that just set the tone because what we also see, especially with your aerial shots, is that we don't see the requisite, you know, telephone poles or, right. you know, or electrical, you know, transformer things because we are truly out in the backwoods. And for anybody yeah. that's from back east or has gone down into that area of Kentucky or anywhere yeah. up and down, you get off the I-95 and you start delving. Because I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm from suburban Philly, so I've been all over back there. And yeah. so you know, it's like, okay, are the doors locked? Are the windows up? Uh, are you paying? <laughs> are you paying attention? And that's exactly. I know what, images of werewolves start creeping in very quickly. Uh, well, you and you give us werewolves in the form of God. One of yeah. my favorite. One of my favorite character actors, Micah Hauptman. You bring in. Yeah, I know, isn't he? I love him to pieces. Micah's a lovely human. Oh, Micah's done the show before. I think he's done it twice now. And yeah. I love Micah, but you bring in our werewolves in the form of Micah and Daniel yeah. Hill yeah. as as these backwoods, <laughs> you know, country boy, rednecks, Hollister and Buck. Then you toss yeah. in Sean O'Brien, who is there anything Sean hasn't been in? Uh, no, he, because he's amazing. He's been around forever and he's from yeah. Kentucky. So to have him step in as the sheriff bodes just another level of authenticity but here you have our city girl who now has to go up against these guys and it starts with the minute she gets out of the car with a fight scene that is so wonderfully choreographed oh that makes me really happy to hear i mean this is this and this is your first you know like action fight sequencing is it not yeah (laughs) yeah it is so what was that experience like for you? I mean, years ago, I was doing production and working a lot of second unit. So I have, yeah. I have great affection for stunt teams, for action sequences, for fight sequences yeah. like this. And here you've got... I mean, that, that's, that's, you bring up a very important point, which is when you get into things like stunts and pyro and, you know, explosions, it's not just the director. I am communicating what I want to see. I am communicating what I need it to achieve, meaning how I want the audience to feel, what information I want the audience to get. But it very much becomes a collaborative process between, you know, your stunt coordinator, your your special effects people, um, your first AD. You know, all these people really become key when you get into things like stunts and and fire and, and, and crazy things like that, where safety is the most important thing. And you um, have all of that. Creatively, you know, when I was talking to my stunt coordinator for the first scene, I was like, look, this is not, she's not a superhero. She is a, a young woman who is physically strong. We see that in the first scene. Yep. Who is smart. Um, you know, she's probably taken some self-defense classes. Let's lean into that. The fight should be messy. Um, it, it, it's not, you know, glorified. Um, it, it, some of the things that happen in it need to feel accidental. Um, but, but, you know, she probably picked up a few things here and there um, that come back. Well, of course, watching that fight scene choreographed, I, I could not help but think and seeing some of the moves, I couldn't help but think about Sandra Bullock in, you know, in Miss Congeniality with Sing. You know, solar solar plexus instep, nose, you know, because this is where she was going. So clearly, this girl, Sawyer, could be a movie watcher. She could have picked up some of this watching (laughs) watching (laughs) the film, too. Absolutely. I mean, all these little touches. And of course, and you do have pyrotechnics happening here. um, We do. Which, I mean, they're not little. I was like, look, if. (laughs) Yeah. There, that's those are no small pyrotechnics. You, pyrotechnics you have going on. They were very fun. <laughs> but you know, getting as we go from the fight scene to the pyrotechnics, that's where all of the emotion in the storytelling really happens. Yeah. And once you introduce Jay Paulson's character of Lowell, and mm-hmm. we watch this yeah. incredible dynamic start developing between Sawyer and Lowell as he rescues her. 
um, after she, you know, passes out, she's been stabbed. She's mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the woods in November in the middle of the night. We see the cold air breath coming yep. out. I mean, yeah, you know, she's in dire straits and he saves her. Does she trust yeah. him? Does she not to watch this yeah. relationship? How did you go about casting the two of them in particular? Because they have a chemistry okay. that is so wonderful to watch. So there's a funny story there. With Hermione, we did traditional, well, with all the roles, we did traditional casting. Um, the casting directors, Jeremy Gordon and Caroline Lean, uh, worked with me to find all the wonderful actors. Um, and Hermione was amazing, blew us all away. Jay, I knew personally because we're neighbors. Oh, my God. <laughs> and when I was, yeah, when I was casting, I was like, I don't know. I think he'd be amazing in this. So I texted his wife, you know, who I have on my speed dial for trading of things like butter or whatever. Of course. And I was like, hey, I'm, I'm making this movie. I don't know if Jade would be interested. It's small, but I think there's a really great role in it for him. You know, have him check out the breakdowns. And if he wants to come in, have him come in. And he liked it. And he came in. And he auditioned. And he was amazing. I got to tell you, and the camera loves him on screen. The wide-eyed yeah. innocence that he brings. The blue eyes. I mean, you just gravitate, you know, and right away it's like you want to trust this man. You want to mm. trust him. Yeah, he may be cooking meth in his kitchen in his, in his <laughs> you know, you know, in his mobile home here, but he's smart. He's caring. And never once do you feel threatened by him. And I thought that was a really, really interesting casting, and it works so well. And then to see the two of them start bonding and trust between the two starts developing, totally unexpected, but very, very welcoming, especially when we see how everything else is playing out in this lovely little hamlet. Yeah. Um, with uh, our our corrupt, you know, rednecks. Um, yeah. So dynamic. You know, one thing I kept thinking of as I'm watching the film, I couldn't help but think about Simeon Rice and his directorial debut of Unsullied um, with Murray Gray. I mean, here is a woman. She okay. got stranded. She was an athlete. She was a runner also. And uh-huh. she gets, but she actually gets taken hostage. And But right. here again, you've got a woman who's using her wits and her wherewithal to figure out how to save herself, how to survive. And Well, I think that's what Lowell and Foyer both have in common. And yes. that's kind of the way I see the world, which is we all do the best we can with the tools we have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that is what they're both doing in this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of tools... I have to ask you about what the weather did to all of your filmmaking tools <laughs> because weather yeah. back east can turn on a dime in the winter, especially in the mountains. Yeah. And um, how, what kind of challenges did Mother Nature present for you? Oh, my Lord, so many. We had every type of weather. We had rain. We had snow. One day we got ushered down into a basement because we were having a tornado. Um, Weather was definitely a challenge. The the biggest one was the cold. Um, you know, there were days where it was so cold that our batteries didn't work or okay. our, our gaffer tape didn't work. Um, it was definitely a challenge. We had to, to secure um, hand and feet warmers that we would secure uh, to the batteries. And, um, you know, but with that, with that challenge came great opportunity as well, which was, like you noticed, we were able to authentically capture the mm-hmm. actor's breath. Yeah. There's ice that was there, you know, the frost on the, on the, on the car. That's all real. Mm-hmm. No, I, and you can tell this is not special effects. This is not CGI. This is all real and authentic and happening yeah. in the moment. Similarly with, I have to commend Michelle for the beautiful, beautiful lensing of the river. You did a beautiful job. The river is exquisitely shot. And I like how you cut back and forth. And you've got some great metaphor there about the running river 
Sawyer is running. Lowell is running. You know, it's constantly right. flowing. They do not have to stagnate and stay there. And really, really beautifully done. Plus, you also could see how clean and clear that water was, which mm. really just makes you think cold. So. Yeah, it's cold. And the we were very surprised by the current. There were some days where it was too strong. We weren't able to shoot. We had to reschedule. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely provided some challenges and beautiful opportunities at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I could I could look at some of the, those river shots all day. They're just gorgeous. Gorgeous. I love that. Yeah, you know, well, something else that I truly love that really set the tone immediately, Scott Salinas, the music, the score yep. that he puts together just in the yep. opening with the titles, as, you know, yep. the opening titles are still, you know, popping up. He takes us through yep. three different types of music we start with something that is very acidified and as she starts getting into you know the backwoods there's a change in the music and in the instrumentation it sounded like yeah. we were picking up a little twang maybe a little banjo in there and then by the time she just before she gets stuck because she can't read a map and she has no wi-fi yeah um the yeah. music has changed so that we know we're in a totally different place than where we were when she started on her road trip. All in that small sequence. So working with Scott was amazing. And one of the things that we really experimented with was finding sounds that were authentic to the area, but that were not stereotypical. Right. You know, we didn't go hardcore into the twingy twangy. There's a bit of it. um, Yeah, a little bit, but... We really tried to work with natural... um, Elements such as wood and metals, lots of percussive things that would be found in the area because of the geography or in the area because of the nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hand in hand with that is your sound design because we're hearing the crunch of the leaves. We're hearing the yeah. branches breaking as you're walking on them. We're hearing things within the sheriff's station. We're hearing things within the mobile home. Sound becomes, so is a character here. Yeah, and Gabe Serrano, I've been working with Gabe since film school. Um, and the two of them, Scott and Gabe, they would trade off sound. You know, some of the more musical sounds ended up in the sound design. Mm-hmm. And some of the sound effect sounds ended up in the uh, music as well. I mean, just so well done. So well done, Jen. You know, what did you, in the process of making this film, what did you learn about yourself now that you can take forward into future films? Oh, Lord. I mean, the thing is, the thing that's so wonderful about movie making is you're constantly learning. Mm -hmm. So everything, you know, hopefully I can do a million things better next time. Um, I think you did them pretty darn good this time. Thank you. I'd like to do them bigger. I'd like to start making making films without just sticks and glue. That's my next goal. I want to have some bigger tools to do some bigger things. But do you find as a director that sticks and glue forces you to be more, possibly more creative? Sometimes. Sometimes, but there's, there's always limits. Yeah, when you got to put the batteries in the, in the hand and foot warmers instead of hand and feet. That's... Yes. That's that's a tough part. Indeed. You know, I, I'd like to graduate from that. <laughs> you know, I would be remiss not to ask you about your baby, Film Powered. Yes. Talk to me about Film so, Powered. In this day and age, and after Regina King's speech last night at the Golden Globes ab- about producing and 50% of all the things that she produces, there will be gender parity. Film Powered yeah. is a very key element in the world today. Talk to me about it. I agree. And I think that the demand that is being created by all of these parity pledges will be met Mm -hmm. um, by the supply of Film Powered. So what Film Powered is, is it's a community of right now about 2,500 vetted professional women in film and television from every role, from script to criticism. So 
you know, there's lawyers, writers, directors, uh, executives, uh, film critics, uh, distributors, and crew, everyone. Um, it's entirely free to the women members, and it encourages community between the members and encourages hiring of the members by the outside community. It's class, peer-to-peer classes, social events, and jobs. Wow. Now, how many women worked on Rust Creek that are in film power? Do you even know? I do. Yeah. So I think um, I think it was six or seven. Nice. Very nice. Yes. Very nice. And those are all in key head of department roles. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, it, from beginning to end, every aspect of Russ Creek and calling on the talents within Film Powered. I, it, this is just a number. It's a very, you know, open-minded, um, far-sighted, very far-sighted, you know, way of filmmaking. Um, well, look, I think if we continue to neglect 50% of the population when it comes to both our storytelling and our audience, we're also neglecting 50% of the profit. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. How has Rust Creek been received thus far? <laughs> really well. I'm actually a little overwhelmed. I mean, you always hope that a film will be received in a certain way, but there's nothing you can do to really guarantee that. And um, the thing to me about filmmaking that is magic is that that moment that happens when you project something on screen and an audience member comes to you and tells you something about how they experienced the film and they say something almost word for word that you said in your earliest days of prep, Mm-hmm. that is magic. And that's happening with this film, and it's very exciting. Do you have a favorite moment in this film? Gosh, that's hard. You know, for me, I get so like into the details. It'll be like a little look or a, a breath or something like that. Um, that's what I really get excited by. There's a couple of, of things that are happening in in Sawyer's mind during that fight scene that are really pleasing to me. Um, you know, little exchanges between Sawyer and Lowell always make me happy. It's, it's always the little details for me. I have to tell you, uh, you know, the, the, something that stands out in particular for me are the exchanges, the, the tacit exchanges with their eyes between Sawyer and Lowell yeah. in the third act as she's getting a quote-unquote cup of coffee for him. The yeah, that <laughs> those the looks on their faces, and the way Michelle has captured them, and then the way the way you have them perfectly, your editor David has them perfectly David, yeah. timed, as we cut from one to the other to the other, and the camera is moving in slowly with each one of these mm-hmm. cuts, so it's really intensifying, and you can feel. They're on the same wavelength. They are in each other's heads at that moment. And that, that was so fun to cut. Oh and we had God. so little time to shoot that. It's amazing that we had the options that we had. Um, but yeah, I, that was super fun. And I love seeing people put that together. Oh, that, I think that is one of my favorite sequences in the entire film. And it's, oh, that's great to hear. And it's for that reason of all the elements coming together from their performances to the camera and going in tighter and tighter and tighter. And then Dave, the perfection of the timing and holding each shot. Because if you, if I you, will tell my editor, David oh, Hopper, he will be very pleased. Um, just job. Well done, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, I just hope, you know, people will see it. Um, that's the hard thing about indie film and coming on shows like this is super key to that. And I'm super grateful for the exposure um, because, you know, people can love it, but if only a handful of people will see it, um, you know, that would be a bummer. So I know. I really hope your audience will check it out. And I know it's playing at the Arclight in Culver City on the 10th this week. 
it's so, so it's playing at the Arena Cinema Lounge now, starting on the 11th. Right, on Friday. Um, in, in, on Friday in Hollywood. Okay, and I know it might be next week that it's in Culver City, but I know that you've got a, it's going to be in Culver City at the Arclight there. And of course, it's on VOD as I can vouch for. So Indeed, it's on iTunes. Uh, Amazon, all the places. Go check it out. Uh, well, unfortunately, we are all out of time today for the entire show. This has been oh a, my God. a <laughs> well, thank Jen, you. open invitation anytime. Please come back. Oh, thank you for having me, and thank you for watching. Oh, thank you, and I hope to talk to you again soon. I hope so, too. Have a good one. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Director Jen McGowan talking about Rust Creek. See it, people. That is all the time we have today for our first episode of Year 5. We'll be back next week with more pre-recorded exclusive interviews. And we're going to have some Slamdance and Sundance filmmakers coming up the next few weeks. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 